Okay. Hi, everybody. What, what do you get when you cross a Jehovah's Witness with a Unitarian Universalist? Somebody who knocks on your door and doesn't know why. <laughs> I, I, got, I got more. I got more. Okay. <laughs> Let's pray.
Yeah, yesterday when I was putting up these percentages, sometimes we think, oh, you know, 2%. That's not, doesn't sound like very much. I pay attention to more than that. Because it's hard to imagine our experience of what we don't notice. So I brought this leaf in. Uh, you all saw this leaf and passed it by. Anybody remember it? Anybody lose their leaf? <laughs> no? Just, it's right out there, so all of you saw this. And, and you ignored it, because your brain knew that it was not relevant to your life. So, but we look at this, and one of the things we know about what happens, uh, the way that energy and information gets transmitted in the universe is that everything that happens actually has a subsequent effect and a ripple. And so we can imagine all the different colors this leaf has been. We can look at its shape. You can think about the bugs maybe that ate part of it. What it was like when it was little, a little leaf. All of the raindrops that hit it. Uh, you could probably spend a couple of weeks uh, just paying attention to this and imagining and coming to experience everything that has happened to it. Now look outside. Look at how many leaves there are. And then Think about all the things out there that you can't see right now, all the bugs, the blades of grass, the people. Look at every one of us. Can you start to feel infinity a little bit? See, that's where God lives, is in infinity. That's all around us all the time. Let's listen again. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of God who is in heaven. For God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? The word for this morning is enemies. Enemies. Now, one of the things that I want to just get at a little bit, because the bottom line of what is going on here and what spiritual life and community is about is paying attention. It's really what it's about at its simplest form. So one of the things I was starting to notice yesterday 
in some of the questions and things that were being brought up is this somewhat perhaps rising anxiety about when's he going to tell us what to do? Like, I'm not hearing seven steps to a perfect Christian life yet, right? What, what, are, what are we going to do? Like, I'm just hearing all this foo-foo, weird, nothing stuff. <laughs> I don't like that, right? And what that is, what that is, you see, is that is part of our modern bubble, the bubble of doing things, right? Isn't that the way our whole life is organized, our society? Right? One of my favorite bumper stickers that perfectly illustrates this, Jesus is coming, look busy. Right? Right? Jesus is coming, look busy. Uh, a friend of mine and I once were leading a five-day retreat that uh, it, it was a particular event to which camping and conference ministry people from across the country had been invited to learn about spiritual practices. And so we had all these camp program directors and, you know, there's, there's no more compulsive doing kind of person than a camp program director, right? right. And, uh, and so... You know, I mean, somebody's got to come up with all these games that Pete's always throwing at us, right? I mean, we got the jousting horses. We're going to have, like, balloons soon or something. I expect any wild stuff to come out, right? And, it, and we have to, you know, you're doing all these things to create these environments, right? And so all these people are like, okay, great. Now I'm going to learn a new set of things, doing all this stuff. And... We're going along, and we're kind of doing our thing, and we're talking about these spiritual practices, and these people are getting more and more irritated. And after a couple days, now they're starting to get mad at us. And, you know, then the staff that invites them, that, you know, because you, you can't have your participants get mad at you because they fill out bad evaluations, then you're in trouble. So at the staff meetings, they're getting a little more dicey, like, oh, people are really wondering, like, when are you going to start talking about doing things? Now, the reality is that we had been talking about doing things. But they were different kinds of things. And so finally, I just ditched one of my talks, and I went and I wrote up on the board all of the spiritual practices that we'd been talking about, and it was about 15 different things. And I just said, you know, so I'm hearing you guys are mad at us, and I'm sorry, and you're concerned about that we're not giving you things to do for your camp programs. I said, but here's all the things we've been talking about doing. Right? Because they'd been putting all of that into the ignore category. So they hadn't heard any of it. And so they're looking at the list. And again, like when you get out of the bubble, like it's a weird experience. It's kind of as if your brain goes on tilt for a second. You know, and you get this weird look on your face, like, oh, my eyes are disconnected from my brain here. I'm trying to not see something. And then you're like, oh, yeah, I guess those are things we could do. <laughs> We're like, yeah, right, that's what we've been talking about. Okay. 
we now have massive amounts of medical evidence and data that our life of endless busyness is killing us. Now, I am not using that term metaphorically. I am using it literally. Okay? The incredible rise and epidemic in anxiety and depressive disorders, the incredible rise and epidemic in autoimmune disorders, the incredible rise and epidemic in medicating our children, all of these things are coming from this life of endless doing and busyness. And it is not good for us, and we know that. Well, there are facts out there that know it. And what we do is we take all those things and we put it in the ignore category and we sign our children up for 37 new activities. Because that's what our society tells us to do. Right? And so the reality is that I actually have been talking about some things that you can do with yourself and your family. Right? If, if you took half an hour a week to do silent prayer with your spouse, not a day, not every other hour, just, just a week. You just did it once a week. Uh, you would find your life to begin to change in very positive and significant ways. If you spent a few minutes in quiet together as a family with your kids, you would find your life changing in significant ways. If you took some time reflecting on leaves that you passed by, you would find your spiritual life deepening in significant ways. If you practiced your listening skills, your attentiveness to one another, you would find your life changing in positive and significant ways. Now, the problem with all these things is that they run counter to what society is telling us to do. And so we get this, eh, I, I just, I can't do that. If you enrolled your kids in half the number of activities that they're enrolled in, they would be more healthy. But that what, what would somebody say if they quit the hockey team? You know, when I moved to Crookston, Minnesota, hockey used to be a winter sport. I mean, it still took every waking second of your day during the winter. But it was just a winter sport. The kids started in October. I mean, winter was a little longer up there. but So they started in October, and by March, they were done. Hockey is now a year-round undertaking. Yes, and everything is now a year-round undertaking. Right? And families... Families now go into debt 
they actually take out loans in the fall to pay for their year-round sport activities that they then have to work a second job in the summer to pay off so that they can then do it again. Right? This is not life-giving. This is not of God. But we just keep doing it more and more and more and more. Right? Because we're a prisoner of what our tribal world tells us to do. And when you, when you attempt to step out of that, you feel the dissonance. Right? And so that's why spiritual practice is practice. Because we have to engage these things more and more so that, again, as we connect more deeply uh, with the divine, who is all about what is life-giving, right? that is the basic definition of God, is that which is life-giving. Uh, as we connect more and more with that, we have a greater sense of confidence to do the things that we are discerning and understanding are life-giving, even if it runs counter to what most of the rest of the world is doing, which, by the way, is what we say God is about, I think. Right? Jesus is different than the world. I think I've heard that in the Bible. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay, so I, I, just, I just want to kind of pause and address this issue because, uh, again, it's a great way of kind of noticing like, okay, what is this attention thing all about? To begin to notice the automatic things in our lives uh, that maybe are not working so well. All right, is there any questions, comments, comments? Okay. Back to bubble land. All right, so enemies. What is an enemy? Any guesses? Somebody you dislike? Okay. Yeah, that, that could be an enemy. Yeah, an enemy is anybody that's not in the bubble with you. So, what does that mean? What? Yeah, different views, values. Yeah, is anybody in there with you? No. Everyone, everyone is potentially an enemy. <laughs> right? Because everybody's bubble is slightly different. Okay? Right? This is why marriage is so hard why marriage is so hard. Because you are entering into this incredibly intimate relationship with another bubble person. And so uh, marriage without attention, without attention to it as a spiritual practice, marriage becomes the battle of the bubbles. 
Who gets control over the other person? Right? Who gets to say who does what, when? Right? Is it okay to not put away your socks? Who gets to take care of the house? Who gets to pay the bills? How do we raise the kids? The looks on your guys' faces are great right now. You're all thinking like, oh yeah. <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah, so that's what happens. And society actually sets up all kinds of rules, right, to make the battle of the bubbles a little smoother. Right? This is what patriarchy is all about. Right? If we just say the guy always gets to choose the rules, right, then that makes things, quote, easier unless you're the woman. Right? And so if women uh, are just property, which is what women have been um, most of society's history, well, then we just get to pretend they don't even have a bubble. That doesn't count. And they just get sold off. And then they get told what to do. And then we pretend that God wants that. Okay, so there are all of these rules and regulations then that society creates to help this happen, to make it, quote, easier. But really, what it's just doing is trying to manage and keep the bubbles intact. Okay? So, so an enemy is anybody whose reality becomes significantly different from ours. Right? And of course, you know, this is one of the reasons that uh, once divorce became acceptable in society, the divorce rates just skyrocketed. Right? Before, it wasn't that marriages were better than they are now. Please don't delude yourself into thinking that. It's just that there were incredible societal pressures to prevent that from happening. Right? Women were not allowed to have their own checking accounts. Women were not allowed to get their own jobs. Uh, people got fired if they were divorced. I mean, there were incredible societal pressures to keep these relationships together. As soon as those were taken away, uh, and suddenly people realized what incredible enemies they were, and they didn't have any way to work with that, divorce rates went through the roof. Because people were like, yeah, I gotta get away from my enemy. I've gotta kill this situation. And one of the interesting things to me is that people do not really understand because you know, we're not taught about this. It's not our fault in any way, shape, or form. That this is actually what makes marriage one of the most profound spiritual practices there is. If we look at it that way. If we understand that. Right? Because if, if what we say, right, is that our spiritual life is about allowing this to dissolve... 
zone. Now, we begin to become free of our bubbles. And one of the best ways to do that is to have somebody else very close to us all the time. Now then we further complicate this arrangement by having children. So, at first, at first, uh, the child is mostly inside the parent bubble. But those little suckers grow. <laughs> and they start to make their own bubble. Right? They start to make their own bubble. And now, they also become our enemy. <laughs> right? They also become our enemy. Right? Okay? I think of that great interaction yesterday with your daughter. Don't look at me. <laughs> Mommy, don't look at me. <laughs> it's like, whoa. <laughs> okay? Yeah, they, and what, what is that about? They're forming their own bubble. They don't want to be in your bubble anymore. Right? And, of course, their bubble is made up of lots of pieces of your bubble that they're borrowing. But then they got their own stuff going on that they're throwing in there. Right? And suddenly, you know, they like doing stuff that you can't stand. Right? And, you, you know... Uh, Deborah and I love doing outdoor stuff, and uh, before we had kids, we used to do a lot of backpacking, camping, and everything. And we had this, we had this great vision of family life. You know, you just like you have these fantasies. Oh, I imagine you know us backpacking into the wilderness together, all having our own little tents and everything. It was just so nice. It was such a great vision. And then we had two kids that hated hiking and camping. <laughs> hated. Like, not just didn't like, hated. And at first we tried, you know, we tried. Like, come on, kid, pack up your bubble. We're going camping. It'll be great. You know, we tried to spin it all kinds of good ways. They weren't having any of it. They weren't having any of it. And finally, we just gave up. We just gave up. And, uh, and when my son went on a backpacking trip last summer with two of his friends, I gave him such a hard time. It was great. Like, he is never going to live that down. <laughs> okay? Yeah. So then what happens is... Uh, and this is one of the reasons why so often parenting and families do not go well, right, is because our instinctive behavior is to try to force them into our bubbles. That's our instinctive behavior, right, to try to get them in line, to try to make them do stuff, to tell them what's right, 
you know, this is what you have to do, you know, toe the line, right? And again, historically, I mean, this has basically been the societal norm. And, you know, this is not because people are bad. Uh, actually, it's mostly a survival mechanism. You know, I mean, kids had to work on the farm. They had to, you know, if you didn't, you were all going to die. So that was just the way it was. This is now a group spiritual practice, though, right? How do we start to listen to each other? How do we start to attend to each other? How do we start to teach those practices to our kids so that they can start to learn how to listen and be silent and be reflective? Uh, when I was living in, uh, in San Anselmo, when I was at seminary, the church we were going to uh, started some small group stuff, and so we were in this small group with these other families, and and I said, well, you know, maybe one of the things we could do is some of this quiet time and prayer practice time, and and you know, and we also had meals and had fun, did other things as well, and people were like, oh yeah, that'd be great. So we would get together at our each other's houses, and the kids would all be there. We all had kids, and they were all in elementary school, and. Um, and the adults, we would have our silent time uh, just there in the living room or whatever family room people's house had. And, you know, and the kids would be playing, right? And so at first, when we first started to do this, the kids were running around and, you know, we'd give them a little prompts like, okay, this is a quiet time, so it would be great if you guys could calm down a little bit during that time or go make noise somewhere else. And so they did that and everything. Well... What was really interesting was that over uh, the first year, and we'd get together about every month, over the first year, we started noticing that when we did our quiet time, the kids started getting quieter and quieter. It was really, really interesting. And then one day, <laughs> I remember this was just so great. One day, uh, we're together, and so we're all sitting in our circle in the living room, and after we were done and got up, the kids were in one of the bedrooms. They were all sitting in a circle being quiet. They were all in like second to fifth grade. Right? I mean, we hadn't told them to do this. Right? They were just doing it. And so then every time we got together, like everybody was just silent and listening and paying attention. It was amazing. It was amazing. And so, again, we didn't have to force them to do anything, but, you know, we, we all know that, like, kids pay attention to us and learn by example. <laughs> and so they were just like, okay, this seems kind of fun to do for a few minutes, you know? The parents are all doing it. All right. Now, so within a tribal group, so within a tribal group, what we attempt to do is keep the enemy activity down to a minimum, right, with all of the various norms of our group. And also by collecting people that are pretty similar to us, right? So the, so the tribe, you know, 
naturally, I mean, in the old days, it was just geographic, and it was just familial, right? But now, uh, we still attempt to form these tribes of fairly similar people. And, of course, we've got this phenomenon, everybody's noted, that's even going on on the Internet, right? And the, when the Internet started, we also had this very naive fantasy about the Internet. Oh, the Internet's great. It will connect everybody in the world. It'll be just beautiful. And what we found is, of course, that has not happened. And what has happened is that it just allows us to form tribes in a different space. And everybody gets on the internet and they find the same kinds of people with the same kinds of interests, the same kinds of ideas, the same kinds of ideals, values, and they just talk to those people. Right? Now, again, all those people aren't identical. They all still have their bubbles. But they have this tribal bubble that, uh, within which we try to keep the enemy activity down to a minimum. Now, remember, though, there are other tribes out here. We have no such compulsion about keeping the enemy activity down to a minimum with the other tribes. And I said yesterday, what happens when the tribes bump into each other? Well, we just kill each other. Right? Uh, we're having a hard enough time managing our own tribe, thank you very much. Uh, this tribe, we don't care about. Now, when the world was a smaller place, or a bigger place, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, when there were only the 200 million people on the entire planet, um, you know, this tribal warfare thing, well, it wasn't very good for whichever tribe lost, but from a bigger perspective, it was kind of manageable. And you could also always take your tribe and move them down the road a little bit and there was actually empty space around and that sort of thing. Uh, there aren't 200 million people on the earth anymore. Right, we're headed up to 10 billion by the end of this century. There's no more space. There's no more room. There's nowhere to go. And so this behavior of deciding that we're just going to kill the other tribe is no longer a sustainable option. And we are seeing that. And we know that. And we're taking all that information and putting it into the ignore category. And we're still thinking that we can just kill the other tribe and everything will be fine. And it won't be. It won't be. And this is all the behavior that these practices of doing nothing are meant to undo and to allow God through the holes and the bubbles. 
I'm going to tell you about Paul and Helen Shanks. Paul and Helen Shanks are both dead. Uh, they both died in their 90s. And uh, they were members of the Presbyterian Church in Crookston. And, and they had, uh, the reason they were in Crookston was that they had given up their whole life. They're from a booming metropolis in North Dakota called Bathgate. I'm sure you've all been there. It's really big on the tourist circuit. I think there's like 80 people there. It's right next to the Canadian border. Uh, they had grown up in Bathgate. They had a farm there. All their family was there, their friends, their church, all that. They'd given up their entire life there uh, when they were in their 60s uh, to move to Crookston because Helen's sister developed uh, Lou Gehrig's disease. And the only facility, the closest facility where she could be was one of the nursing homes in Crookston. So she had to go there by herself. And Paul and Helen uh, sold their farm, left their friends, left their family, moved to Crookston just for the purpose of being near Helen's sister. They had their 66th wedding anniversary, happened to be on a Sunday, and uh, they were in church. And they happened to be sitting in the front row. Now, this is also an interesting story about them. Because Paul and Helen always sat in the back row. I think they had their name engraved on one of the pews in the back row there. And, you know, they would tell me sometimes that the sound system wasn't so great, they couldn't hear me. And I would always just say, well, you know, if you moved up closer to the front, uh, you could probably hear me. And they, they never would. They never would. Which, whatever. Until one day, they were honorary pallbearers in a friend's funeral. They and several other people. And so, they were forced to sit in the front row. See, so sometimes, sometimes our bubble blows up out of our own practice. Sometimes, and I heard this yesterday in our small group, this is a great observation. You know, sometimes our bubble gets blown up for us. Uh, but that's rarer, unfortunately. But here they were sitting in the front row because they were forced to. And, you know, they were from the generation where you just do what you're told. And so when the funeral director said, you guys sit in the front row, they were just like, okay, you sit in the front row. <laughs> and they're coming out after the service. And Paul says to me, you know, we could really hear you. <laughs> and I'm like, Paul, that's amazing. I think I've mentioned that to you before. Well, he didn't sort of notice that comment. But this was the thing about Paul and Helen. The next Sunday and every Sunday after that, they were in the front row. They actually paid attention to their experience. So anyway, they're sitting in the front row. It's their 66th wedding anniversary. So, you know, I said, okay, well, Paul and Helen, you know, you guys have seemed to have had a pretty great marriage. And life, uh, you know, what's your secret, right? The famous question, what's your secret? And literally, without missing a beat, the two of them turned to each other and at the same time said, you just do what the other person wants. Right? Now, 
think about that for a second. If both people are always doing what the other person wants, right? What, what does that create in terms of this incredibly open space of possibility? Right? This is a description of becoming completely detached from your world. I'm willing to completely give up my world for the other person. The other person is completely willing to give up their world for me. And what that means, right, is that we're also open to the possibility now of really listening deeply to a third voice. I'm sure if you asked both of them, neither one of them would have wanted to give up their life in Bathgate. They loved their life in Bathgate. They loved their farm. They loved their church. They loved their friends. Right? That was their world. They didn't want to give that up. But because they were habitually engaged in the practice of always being open to listening to what somebody else wants in their lives, when Helen's sister had this horrible disease and had to go and move and be by herself in a nursing home room that she couldn't get out of except in a wheelchair, they heard this other voice that said, we have to go be with her. And they gave up their entire world. And again, what they did not find was this nothingness, right, that this existential anxiety is always pressing upon us. They didn't find this nothingness. What they actually found was another incredibly rich and wonderful life. And another wonderful church that they loved. And another group of friends. And their family came to visit them in Crookston. And they had this incredible experience of being of service. So the, the bubble world tells us if I'm open to something else, if I'm open to something else, this will be a bad thing, right? If I don't put my kids in all those extra activities, it will be a bad thing. If I allow myself to listen to something different, it will be a bad thing. If I have a neighbor that looks different from me, it will be a bad thing. If I talk to somebody of a different religion, it will be a bad thing. Right? If I do something, if I give up something that's killing me, even though it's what I've always done my whole life, it will be a bad thing. Right? That's the message that we're continually being given by our tribe. The thing is, that is not true. <laughs> that is not true. It's a lie. And when we talk about the world and the prince of the world being a liar, this is what we're talking about. Because that infinity, that openness, right, that presence of God in our lives, that life-giving spirit is always there supporting us. 
Right? This is one of the reasons that some of the most profound spiritual texts in our tradition were written by people who were in prison. Right? This is not the lifestyle we all aspire to. In fact, it's the lifestyle we're all trying to avoid. Because that's bad and horrible. Right? Because it means completely giving up our world. And yet what these people have found and experienced, and again, it's not that they wanted to be in those situations, they didn't. But when they found themselves in those situations and didn't have anything to do except engage their spiritual lives, they found this incredible ecstatic bliss. And so the, this is one of the reasons, though, that something happening. A mouse is moving. It is pointing to the great nothingness of the back wall. There it is. There's no bubble there. So, but this is one of the reasons why we talk about the spiritual life as requiring courage. It requires courage. Because initially, our response to moving beyond ourselves, as we mentioned, is, is being afraid. Being afraid. So we have to overcome that fear, which is one of the reasons that Christian spiritual practice is about practice in community. This is another thing. In our society, spiritual practice more and more has become an individualistic activity. You know, it's just my spiritual practice. I got to go do these things. This is not what Christian spiritual life is about. It's always about life and community, which is one of the great tragedies about most of our churches which do not engage in corporate spiritual practice. Even though we're all there and there would be a good opportunity. Okay? But one of the reasons that we do it in community is because then the spiritual energy supports ourselves and one another. Right? And when one person feels a little afraid, another person is feeling confident. When one person is feeling a little down and hesitant and uncertain, the other person is feeling very strong and faithful. Right? And we experience that in our lives together. Okay. And we even now, again, science is uh, studying all this stuff, and they're finding out that what mystics have said for about 5,000 years is true, uh, but now that you can see it on an MRI machine, it must be super true. Right? Um, what, uh, what you can see, actually, is that when people do spiritual practice together on retreat, you have greater effect than when the individuals do it by themselves. You can actually measure that. Which again, if, if one has ever been on a long practice retreat, you can also experience that happening. Okay. All right. I'm noticing a lot of antsiness. So I want you to stand up. Gonna get into our bodies a little bit. And if you gotta sort of stretch out in the rows a little bit. Yeah, okay. And, 
And um, so this is a, a wonderful, simple uh, body practice we can do. It feels good to stretch. We naturally want to do that. Okay, so I'm going to teach you this. Uh, you're going to have to make a little more space in the rows. A little more space. Okay. So this is a very simple movement prayer. All right, so uh, the way it goes, and of course, we're going to have the left-right thing, so that'll be fun. We'll all bump into each other. Okay. So it's very simple. You do it with your breathing, and so we're going to start kind of with our hands about right here, sort of right at our stomach level. And as we breathe in, I want you to allow your hands to go out. Right? Nice deep breaths. Okay, now, as they come back in, now we're going to your left side, which is your left, it's over there. Right? I'm going to go the other way, but don't be fooled. We're all going to our left. Okay, as we go, we're going to take our left hand and we're going to put it on the top. And we're going to sort of rest our head like we're on a pillow. Your left, other way. Well, oh, other way. Ah, there you go. <laughs> okay, breathe out. Now we're then going to breathe in and we reach our left hand, other left hand, left hand. See how hard it is to even just pay attention to our bodies? Right? We're going to breathe in, and then we're going to come back down to the center. Okay? Then we're going to do this again. Only now we're going to go to our right side, which is the other side, and you're going to put your right hand on the top. You're going to make like a little pillow, like you're resting your hand on the pillow. And then you're going to breathe in, right hand. It's going to go up, other right hand. Okay? And then back down. So let's do this again a couple more times. Nice deep breath in. Now we're going to the left side. Your left hand's going to be a little pillow. And then you're going to reach up. Again, breathing in. And back down. Breathing out. Again, breathing in. Go to the right side. A little pillow. Let's have a seat. I'm going to be quiet for a couple minutes. That's a very simple thing you could do. It's a prayer called Connecting Heaven and Earth. And a couple things about uh, silent prayer time. Um, so being in our bodies is a challenge. Uh, silent prayer time is very much about being in our bodies, so it's nice to be aware of our posture. It's nice to have kind of upright posture, not super rigid, but just upright, kind of our heart open. Our hands can be on our laps in whatever way is comfortable. Our heads up. You can imagine that your spine is suspended from the ceiling with a string. And it's just resting very naturally. Right. And again, you can have your eyes closed or open. And if they're open, you have your gaze slightly downward. 
And another uh, nice technique for silent prayer is a very old one where you have what's called a sacred word. Only it doesn't matter what the word is. It doesn't need to be anything sacred. If you have a hard time thinking of a word, I often recommend porcupine. Just because it's kind of funny. And when we drift off in our minds and we become detached from our bodies and we notice that we're distracted, we simply use our word like an anchor to bring us back to where we are. So we're not repeating this word a great deal necessarily. We're not focusing on this word. We're just using it like a marker to bring us back to the fact that we're just sitting here in this room putting ourselves at God's disposal, watching our thoughts and feelings come and go, watching the spaces between them, just developing our awareness, allowing God into our hearts and minds even if we have no idea how that's happening. So let us pray.
think it's small group time. Shall we take a break and then come back a few minutes? Thank you. <laughs>